Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Melanie Benjamin's historic fiction successfully combines romance with thriller plots involving famous true life heroes. So it's not surprising that her books regularly top the New York Times and USA Today bestseller lists. Hi there. I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Melanie talks about her latest book, Mistress of the Ritz, a World War II story based on the landmark Paris Hotel taken over by the Nazis. It's a love story and a suspense thriller all in one. You'll find the show notes for this episode on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Melanie's books, her social media, as well as details about how to subscribe to us so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Melanie. Hello there, Melanie, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Well, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for thinking of me, Jenny. Look, you're a New York Times and USA Today best-selling historical fiction author. You've got foreign rights sold in a dozen countries. You, You sound as if you're really at the top of your game. But was there a once upon a time moment when you just knew that you had to write fiction? How did it all start? Yeah, it's it's never quite like it is in a book, is it? <laughs> or a movie where there is a uh, just one moment. No, it's never quite like that. Um, you know, I came to this fairly late in my life. I didn't even consider being a writer until I was nearing forty. It's a long time ago, and. Um, I was, my first love was theater and I really wanted to pursue an acting career, which was not supported by my family. So that led to a lot of angst about dropping out of college and running out, trying, wanting to go off and do my theater and pursue my acting. And it was just kind of a muddle. And then I got married and then I had children very young and I did a whole stay at home mom thing and the, the, what we call the PTA up here, the parent teacher association president thing. And, um, but I wasn't very happy, but I was always a reader although I had never considered writing as a career. It was just something that came very naturally to me and helped me through all my years in college and high school. Um, writing was always an easy A for me, but uh, a dear friend of mine said, I was coming up on my 40th birthday, and she said, you know, I always thought you'd be a writer. And uh, to, the, to this day, she doesn't know why she said that. Um, and But when she did say it, it kind of was like a little light bulb went off over my head, um, certainly, I was a very articulate, highly verbal person. I lived in my head a lot. I pretended a lot. I always had. I was a huge reader. And I, uh, so I set out to, to start to write. And I wrote a couple of like little essays that got me some, um, a parenting column, a column in a parenting magazine. And then I wrote a short story that won a contest. And uh, that just, you know, was a dangerous enough amount of success to keep me going. And, but my, I thought if I was going to be a writer, to me, that meant writing novels because I do love novels. That's my preferred form of reading, although I do read a lot of nonfiction as well. But to me, being an author meant writing a novel. And so 
that started me on the path of, of with a lot of um, trial and error, a lot of little successes and a lot of big failures until finally I was uh, a novelist. Fantastic. So now you've published six historical novels mm-hmm. and each one is focused on a fascinating and sometimes very famous woman. Um, you've done Babe Pauly in The Swans of Fifth Avenue, Mary Pickford and The Girls in the Picture, You've been a pick for fantastic entertainment magazines like Opera and the Entertainment Weekly. Has there been a highlight for you so far in your career? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I th- certainly the first time I was invited into uh, to the offices of Random House uh, in New York to to have you know to to be presented with the marketing plan for one of my novels that was uh, Aviator's Wife. Um, the first time I had a novel, novel really, truly kind of um, really uh, be elevated in-house to kind of a big novel, um, that was a moment for sure. <laughs> that was a, a dream come true moment to have all these wonderful professionals telling me how much they love my book and how much they wanted to do for it. That was an amazing um moment seeing it in people magazine as a you know that was great um uh, the skim was one of the other the i don't know if you're familiar with that it's a it's a you know very popular new uh daily email newsletter that goes out and it's aimed towards women and and they picked my book that was the swans of the avenue and that morning um oh my phone just started ringing everybody in the world had seen it but i think okay i do have a moment i was on jeopardy I I wasn't, but I was a question on Jeopardy. So that was probably the moment. <laughs> oh wow! And what was the yeah. question? Uh, I think it was what 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 recent his what what famous or recent historical novel is or and I'm framing it wrong because it's always the answer of an answer. Um, this famous historical novel tells the story of Anne Marl Lindbergh and her husband Charles or something. By and it was written by Melanie Benjamin. And um, the answer was The Aviator's Wife. So Great, was, yes. Yeah. You've got yeah. so many fantastic books that we haven't mentioned The Aviator's Wife, but tell us a little bit about, was that one of your first books that really hit the bestseller list? Yeah. Uh, the, um, the My first historical novel was, now I had been published back in 2005 under my real name, Melanie Hauser. I had a couple of chiclet novels that came out with Penguin that didn't do well. I mean, they, they truly they were abject failures. There was no other way to put, to say. And so I kind of had to start over and reinvent myself, which I did um, as writing historical fiction. So my first historical novel under my pen name, Melanie Benjamin, came out in 2010, Alice I Have Been. And it did well, I believe, if I'm trying to remember, it might have grazed like the extended bestseller list on the New York Times and um, and made some regional lists, and then the autobiography of Mrs. Tom Thumb came out after that. Didn't do quite as well, um, but then The Aviator's Wife was the one that um, there was a lot of buzz for that book. Uh, the people, and all that starts within the publishing house, right? So that was the book that kind of people inside my publisher really thought, oh, you know, this one we really, really think can be a big book. And I saw how some of that works. And um, so, yeah, that was my first New York Times bestseller. Now, I think that your most recent one is The Mistress of the Ritz, is it? I mean, yes, it's sometimes hard to Ritz. tell from the website, yeah. yeah. And that's a World War II story based on a true story of an American woman who, Blanche, and her French husband 
Claude Ozello, who mm-hmm. were directors of the famous Paris Hotel when the Nazis took over Paris. And it's a lovely story. It's partly love story and it's partly a story about how you survive in wartime when you're trying to maintain a normal life but you don't want to collaborate. So it's very complex. Um, how did you initially get drawn into that story? Well, I, I, I kind of, it was my, so far, it's my first and only World War II novel. It, I mean, my books are kind of... Um, a little bit all over the place when you, in as far as the timing and the setting. Um, so I, I'm not one of those authors who kind of sticks to a particular era in her historical novels. I am a little bit all over the place. So this one was my first one that's World War II. And um, there are a lot of World War II novels out there, um, naturally, but um, the story really pulled me in here. I read about this in a nonfiction book called Hotel en Place Vendôme, by an author named Tiller Mazeo. And it came out several years ago. And I, you know, I read a lot just because I'm an interest, I, I'm interested in a lot of things. I do love history. So I'm, I'm often just reading histories for the fun of it. And that's why I read that. It was a nonfiction book. And that was the first time I heard, I really learned about what went on at the Hotel Ritz during the German occupation. That was a part of that particular history that I had no idea. And I, it occurred to me, had not really been explored in fiction or movies or anything like that before. And that is that the Nazis, when they occupied Paris, took over all the luxury hotels, including the Hotel Ritz. And um, that's where Hermann Goering, you know, was initially headquartered during the war. But also it was open to paying guests like Coco Chanel, who we all know now is a collaborator. And there was a lot of intrigue going on at the Ritz. And I was astonished to read about this American woman and her French husband who were, he was the director of the Ritz. So they had to play host basically to the occupying Nazi, you know, high ranking officials at the Ritz. And, um, yet they both got involved in the resistance as well. And I thought that was just, Oh, I mean, I just thought it was so intriguing that all this was going on under the same really glamorous rooftop of the roof of this amazing hotel. And, um, and I always saw this story as a love story and a story of a marriage because the marriage between these two very different people was very interesting and very intriguing and very full of, uh, passion and disappointment. Um, and I just saw this as a story about how war can actually save a marriage in a way. I I guess you could look at it that way and that the war allowed them to see each other, to find their love again, to find, because it it was a marriage that was almost broken by the time the war started. So I just thought that was just a great arc for a novel, plus setting it at the Ritz was very appealing to me. Yes, and Blanche has a great story arc because she's got a very Jewish background. I believe Mm -hmm. she was part of the Rubenstein family. She was an acting hopeful and a a kind of party girl before the war. She (laughs) drank with the in crowd with Ernest Hemingway and stuff. But she transformed into a more serious-minded woman in the war. Mm -hmm. Um, That must have been a very interesting story arc to follow through on as well. Yeah, that's why I say I think this war saved their marriage and it saved the war not... I don't want to glorify war and I don't want to, you know, trivialize it in any way to just, you know, bring it, reduce it to, you know, a depiction of a marriage. I don't mean to do that at all, but I think what's intriguing for me as a novelist is to find these intimate stories that are set against the background of something as large 
and as menacing as the Nazi occupation of Paris, um, particularly when you have a Jewish protagonist. Um, you know, I didn't invent these people. They, re- they truly did live, although not a lot is known about them truly. And so I did get to invent a lot. But yeah, I thought that to me, that was like just such a fascinating aspect of this, that the war made her grow up, you know, and it made um, him see her, you know, in a different, a more respectful way than I think he ever saw her before. And uh, I thought that the whole idea of them both working and risking their lives for the resistance and not telling each other, you know, either I don't know if they were saving each other from the truth or they didn't trust each other, whatever. I found that just a really intriguing, you know, metaphor for their marriage mm, until the mm. moment arrived where they did have to tell each other tr- the truth. And uh, yes. yeah, it's, yeah, I thought that was just a great arc for a story for a novel. Yeah. It's a really good book. And then just because we've only got 30 minutes, if we move on to the, the one, before that, the girls in the picture. Mm-hmm. And it also explores a very complicated both friendship and creative partnership between the actress Mary Pickford and the scriptwriter Frances Marion. Now, I must admit, I'd never heard of Frances Marion before <laughs> I read your book. And uh, it feels crazy that I'd never heard of her because they were both so amazing. I, that's That was to me that, oh, my God, the shame of this the, this whole history about women in Hollywood had these. I mean, Frances Marion was the first woman to win an Academy Award for Best Screenplay yeah. and the first person ever to win two of them. And she was the highest paid screenwriter of her time, one of the most influential screenwriters in Hollywood history. And no one's heard of her. There are no awards named after her. I, I, I find it so frustrating that women... The women were just as responsible as the men were in inventing Hollywood and inventing the art of filmmaking. And yet it's the men we remember, Cecil B. DeMille and Louis B. Mayer. And we don't remember Francis. We don't remember Dorothy Arzner. And we don't remember um, Alice Guy Blachet and all these incredibly pioneering women. And I thought that's what was one one major reason why I wanted to write this book. Because I really, really felt it's time we we remember these women. And Mary Pickford, we may know about certainly, you know, a name, maybe a face, but we probably don't remember that she was the first female head of a motion picture studio. And that these two women together had not just an amazing, what I I think is a truly, you know, empowering female friendship, but also a collaboration that resulted in the most popular movies of their time. A hundred years ago, two women were making the most popular movies in Hollywood. And, you know, that it just doesn't happen anymore. You know, and that I just thought, oh, this story needs to be told as well. Sure. Now, what did happen? You've said that women haven't got back to where they, Marion and um, Pickford were, even today, and yeah. that it all happened after World War One or during World War One. What did happen to strip women of that power? Well, in those early days when Hollywood was truly being invented, you know, the people who were making movies had, you know, they had no experience because there had not been a movie industry. They were literally creating this um, on the fly, by the seat of their pants. So it was extremely collaborative. Um, and everybody pitched in to do all sorts of jobs and men and women together, you know, they, in creative, the creative arts have always been more welcoming of women it, when it's, when you're talking about the pure creative level, right? Um, and in those days, there was no money in Hollywood before World War One, So it wasn't a big industry. There was not a lot of money at risk. 
There weren't people investing in these things. Um, so women were more welcome. And actually the art of screenwriting was kind of pitched towards women. There would be ads in, female, in women's magazines asking women if they have stories that they'd like to sell to Hollywood. It, it, truly the, the storytelling aspect was seen more as women's work. Um, so that, you know, that I'd over, over half the, the screenwriters in, women, in Hollywood in those early years were women. Um, but then when World War I happened, the European film industry was shut down. Um, all the men obviously were at war and the material that was needed to make films was, was all, you know, requisitioned for war material. Um, so there were no movies being made in Europe, but yet they wanted the movie theaters to stay open in England and in France for morale. So Hollywood for the first time, found itself in demand in the European, in the international market. And that's why Hollywood became the, you know, truly the, the leading, um, the leading uh, point of the film industry was because their movies were the only ones that were being made during the war. And so they were being shown during the war. So when the war was over, all of a sudden people realized Charlie Chaplin and Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks were just as popular in England, in France, in, you know, in all these Austria, all these places as they were at home. So it was like, it kind of opened everyone's eyes to the possibilities of this industry as a money-making industry. And very closely on the heels of the wars in 1927, then the Warner Brothers invented uh, Vitaphone, which became the industry standard for sound movies. So you had those two things combining to make people, men, particularly in baking industries, in financial industries, suddenly seeing Hollywood and movie studios as you know, as a money-making institution, and so they flooded the studios with their money. All of a sudden, the studios were being owned by people who lived in New York. They were the movies were made by people in California, but the people who financed the movies were mainly men who lived in New York. And that's when we see women being marginalized and and forced aside. And those pioneering women like Frances Marion and her friends, when they retired, generally in the 30s. They they were not replaced by other women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's where we we are today. Yes. Uh, Mary Pickford was the first female of a head a female head of a major motion picture studio when uh, with United Artists back in nineteen twenty, I believe it was founded, nineteen nineteen. Sorry, and that would not happen again until the nineteen eighties when Sherry Lansing became um, the head of Paramount Pictures. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And, and, and again, you know, the, the number of screenplays written by women, it's somewhere less than 10% now when probably less than 5%. I don't know the exact figures today. Um, certainly the highest paid movie stars in the world are all men. Whereas Mary Pickford was the highest paid movie, movie star of her time. And now women are far down on that list. It's just, um, yeah, that's what's happened in Hollywood. And I think people are, you know, certainly have opened their eyes to that fact. And there is definitely a movement. But here we are again. The Academy Awards are what, February 9th? And not a single female director was nominated again. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that with your theatrical interest, this particular topic obviously gave you um, a lot of 
extra pleasure. And you're also doing a podcast, which I'm, I'm sure reflects that theatrical interest as well, <laughs> co-hosting with another author, Edward Kelsey Moore. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, we, um, we're good friends. We, we, our podcast is called Who the Hell Are We? Because even at our advanced ages, we still don't know. Um, but we, ha- we have a similar background is that we were both born in Indianapolis. And we both had careers in the arts, although his is much more esteemed than mine. But he is a professional musician, and that's kind of where he started. And then I did a lot of theater. Turns out he played in the pit orchestra of one of my shows. We didn't know each other at the time. And then many, many, many decades later, we both end up in Chicago as writers. And we met at an industry event and discovered all this shared background of growing up in Indianapolis to artistic children who didn't quite belong. He is black and he's gay, which means it was much harder for him to grow up in Indianapolis than it was for me. But still, we both never really felt like we belonged there. And we both came to writing fairly late in life. And we have such fun talking together and getting together. We decided to do a podcast where we would... uh, get to be be able to talk together at least once or twice a month and and record it all and have a lot of fun. And we, we have had a lot of fun with it. And it's kind of an eclectic podcast. We talk about a lot of things. We do always try to bring it back around a bit to books and to the writing process a little bit, but it's, it's a lot of us just sitting around and and just gossiping. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. Now, look, um, before we move on to perhaps wider issues, I'm, I'm fascinated to mention also the book Swans of Fifth Avenue because that deals with the way that Truman Capote fell out with the New York socialites. It's such a fascinating topic once again. Um, Tell us a bit about that book and and did you ever get a real sense of why he basically turned on the people who'd given him so much support? Um, Yeah, so that book is one that came to me when I was in the middle of writing another, well, not in the middle, um, I had written another book, a, a a contracted book with my editor and my publisher. And it was a book I couldn't get right. And my editor and I struggled with it for a long time. And we just, I couldn't get it right. And I was on the verge of saying, we're not publishing this one. I'll write you a new one. And, um, but I realized I really should have an idea for something before I say that. And, and uh, it was just me walking around and pulling down books from my bookshelves, looking for ideas. And I um, pulled down a book called Answered Prayers which is the the last, but it's not a finished book. It's an incomplete manuscript written by Truman Capote. And as I was flipping through the manuscript, I did did come across this infamous short story called Le Cote Basque 1965. And I I remembered, it was a little hazy on all the facts, but I remembered there was something of a scandal attached to that short story. Um, I just remember having read about it in um, probably Vanity Fair. Um, so I went and I looked it up and, and then I did, and I realized it was this, this amazingly juicy scandal. <laughs> and and then I I I, I just be, I, I fell in love with Babe Paley and those swans and Truman and that world. And I thought it was fascinating that he would blow it all up (laughs) by writing this short story in which he betrayed all their secrets. And, you know, that, that is what, that's the heart of the book is why did he do this thing? Yes. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) it, It broke a lot of people's hearts. It resulted in at least one death, a suicide. And it truly, it, it ruined his life. Um, you know, and, and truly he never wrote anything really ever again. And why did he do it? And, and I, 
to me, the book is explores that and explores truly who behave, who who betrayed whom. Was it Truman betraying these women who he, had invited him into their circles, or was did they betray him? Um, I think to read the book, we'll find you will find my answers to why he did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we don't want to give that away, but it is a fascinating topic. He was suffering from an awful lot of writer's block after the publication and triumph of In Cold Blood back in 1965. Um, And he found himself unable. He got really caught up in the success uh, of that book and had a real hard time settling down and finding anything to write about after and um, so I think he, in some ways, stole these stories that didn't really belong to him and that weren't, weren't his stories to tell. Um, he also pro- seemed to think no one would under- no one would get it, that they wouldn't understand. He, if all he had to do was change the names and they wouldn't understand that he was writing about them, he said that they weren't smart enough to figure it out, which was blatantly untrue, and he, he had to have known that. Yes. Um, did he do it to challenge them, to test their love, the professed love for him? I, I don't know. There are a lot of reasons why you could think about why he did this thing. But it truly um, destroyed him. Um, didn't destroy his career, but it destroyed his life because the man just descended into that horrible parody of himself and became addicted to drugs and the alcoholism got worse and he just never really wrote anything again. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read somewhere that you've had some movie options taken. I'm not quite sure which book or books that might be on. But are we going to see anything on screen anytime soon? Where are you up to with that? Yeah, who knows? I've had a lot of options and then they've never gotten, you know, into the production stage. There is a chance for Swans of Fifth Avenue that we're working on right now. And I really can't say anything more than that. Uh Um, and uh, fingers crossed, but it's been a very long process. Um, the book kind of got caught up in something Hollywood stuff, um, that delayed progress for a very long time. And we have one more chance, I think, to make this happen. We'll see. Um, and that's really all I can say. Uh, it is my only book that is currently under option. As I say, I have had others under option, but nothing has ever come of it. So uh, that's where we are right now. I guess that's the movie world, isn't it? Yeah. Hollywood has broken my heart many times and I'm prepared for it to do so again. (laughs) (laughs) You're just not getting caught up in it like Truman did. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. I'm, I'm, I'm so burned right now and I've come so close and had so many just really kind of heartbreaking near misses. I'm just kind of like, yeah, whatever. I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Turning to your wider career, Melanie, is there one thing you've done, perhaps more than any other, that you'd credit as the secret of your success? Uh, yeah, I mean, I um, I have to say I'm pretty proud of myself for my career. Um, I did have a, a you know a pretty huge setback early on. Like I said, I had a couple of books published that didn't do well, and I found that it is much harder to stay published than it is to get published in the first place. It is really hard in this industry um, to have uh, to um, you know if your books don't sell, <laughs> you're not going to get another chance to write any. And so I um, reinvented myself back then, and 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 kind of found this new path. And I've I, I think that took a bit of, I don't know, 
not courage, but certainly stubbornness to continue down, you know, to change my name, to be willing to do that, to change my genre, to be willing to do that. Um, and I also, I have never feared running out of stories to tell. Um, so that makes it easier for me to set things aside when they don't appear to be working. Um, I can be pretty brutally honest about my own work. And if some, if I've, I've written a couple, several whole books that ultimately I have decided were not going to be published because I did not feel they worked. I did not feel they were good enough. And I think that has been something that has helped my career. And I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I mean, when you mentioned about the book you were struggling with before you got the idea for The Swans, I thought, I, I kind of identified with that and thought how hard it would be to keep going when you're working on something, you're giving it your all, but you still mm -hmm. feel as if it isn't quite coming together. That's really hard, isn't it? It's, it is, but it's not as hard as some people, I don't, I don't know. It's not that I don't, I'm not attached to my work because I certainly am and I give it my all, but I also have this odd ability, I guess, to kind of separate myself from it and to see the flaws and to, to understand the business end of things and to, I'm not going to be stubborn and stick, try to publish a book that's not good enough simply because I spent a couple of years of my life writing it. I'm not going to, I mean, I don't, so I, I, I have more words. I have more stories. That wasn't the only one I have. And I have that, that ha allows me, I think, to be able to, uh, to be pretty brutally honest, like I said, and, and to put things away when they're not good enough. Um, I, and I know a lot of authors don't seem to be able, can't, I think would find it hard to do that because I think they think I've spent all this time writing this. I have to see it published or I've wasted my time. And I never feel that I've wasted my time on these books that haven't been published. I feel I've learned something from them all. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I just, I have a weird ability to do it. <laughs> look, that's fantastic. Um, look, turning to Melanie as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading. Um, you mentioned you have been a passionate reader. What do you like to binge read? And can you recommend some of your favorites for our listeners? Yeah. Oh, I sh oh shoot. Um, hold on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I meant to have a list with me and now I don't have it. I won't, when I talked up, when you talk about binge reading, I have to say, I don't, not sure I binge read any particular genre or author except at one time of year. And that is during Christmas, the, the month of December, I binge read British novels, uh, <laughs> novels, <laughs> um, not, not domestic, I mean, domestic novels, not mysteries per se, but I, this whole, oh, the entire month of December, I was reading Angela Thurkel um, and all oh, her Barsetshire Chronicles, which are these sweet domestic little British books set between the wars and written back in the 30s and the 40s. And I, I find them oddly comforting. So that's what I binge read. <laughs> <laughs> but I read, I read everything. Um, I've read a lot of contemporary, you know, recently published fiction. Uh, I loved a book called um, uh, The Secrets We Kept, which was a historical novel about the writing of Dr. Zhivago and the CIA's operation to distribute it in Russia. Um, it was fascinating. Um, I read, uh, I just finished reading a memoir by Carly Simon about her friendship with Jackie Kennedy Onassis. Um, wow. That was yeah. fascinating. And, um, you know, I just read a biography of Herman and um, 
and Joseph Mankiewicz, who um, were, you know, the, the Mankiewicz brothers of Hollywood. One wrote Citizen King, the other one wrote All About Eve. I just finished reading a biography about them. So I'm really kind of all over the place with my taste. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Um, we are coming to the end of our time together. So circling around, looking back over your writing career, at this stage, if you were doing it all over again, what would you change, if anything? Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't mind if I could have spared myself those several years of real <laughs> frustrating <laughs> failure. <laughs> I, um, you know, they made me who I am today, so so I value them. If I could have gotten to where I am today without having to go through those years, would have been the better. I mean, I would have been happier, but I'm not yeah. sure that that was a choice I could make. So, um, ah. Yeah, I, yeah. No, I don't know. I really don't regret anything, and I don't know that I'd change anything. Truly, no. How did you switch from romance to historical fiction? Obviously, you made that switch. The, the chick lit kind of thing. It was more like what we called mom lit at the time because the protagonist was a divorced mother, okay, and yeah. it was cra- it was a silly book. It was a crazy book, and it wasn't a book that I wasn't the type of book that I wanted to write or even read but it was oh all right here's one thing I would change I wrote that book to get published um I had taken all the rejection letters from a couple other books that I had tried my hand at and I kind of read them and from them I pieced together the tea leaves of what publishing was looking for and I wrote a book to meet those needs and that was the book that was published but it wasn't a book that um I loved and so that was probably a not, not a smart idea to write solely, to kind of just write a book solely to be published without it being a book I truly, truly loved. Um, and so I think that that was a mistake. And yeah. I think that um, I've learned. Um, so the books that I have written and published as Melanie Benjamin are books that I truly, truly came into as um, um, passionate passion projects. And I, I didn't know I was going to write historical fiction. I just fell in love with um, a photograph, a photograph of a young girl. And it, this girl was the inspiration for Alice in Wonderland. And I didn't know anything of that whole story, the, the truly, the real story behind all that. And when I found that out, I thought, well, that's the book I need to write. And that became, I didn't know it was historical fiction. It was just a story I was passionate about. And um, so that's kind of, I've tried to, to, be wiser. I mean, I'm certainly right. I certainly am wise about the career and the industry. And I certainly listened, you know, try to try to understand what people want to read these days. And I truly want to try to keep that in mind because certainly longevity is important for me as a career, but I will also always want, you know, I will write the books I want to write. I will write yeah. the books I'm passionate about because I've learned that when they do well, like with a book like The Aviator's Wife or Swans of Fifth Avenue, I'm going to be talking about that book for years and years and years to come. So I better love it. And yeah. uh, that is something I've learned. That's great. So what is next for Melanie, the writer? What have you got projected for 2020? Well, I cannot say. Um, I, I, don't have an, I will not have a new book come out this year. Um, Mistress of the Ritz will come out in paperback in May. Um, and I think my next book will be out in 2021. That's what we're talking about right now. And I have already turned it in. Um, but right now I have to keep the topic under wraps um, because it, 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 the, the publishing pro- process um, is different once you're published. And, and, and certain people have to read the book before you can start talking about it. 
So yes. that's kind of where I am right now, waiting for people to read the book in-house. And have you got something else that you're, you've started or thinking about? I just turned the book in, so I can't really talk about that new book. Um, I'll be able to, to announce it soon. And right now I am taking a little bit of break and I'm reading a lot of things and I'm mulling over some ideas, but I don't have anything that I'm working on right at this moment. Wonderful, Melanie. Thank you. Now, look, where can readers find you online and do you enjoy interacting with your readers? Um, I do. I find social media a bit of a challenge. Um, I'm not sure I'd be on there if it wasn't for my career, but I am because I have to be. Um, I love it when I get to meet readers in li- real real life when they come up and they say, I'm your friend on Facebook. That's wonderful. Um, I am on Facebook, uh, Melanie Benjamin Author. I'm on Instagram, same thing, and Twitter as well. It's been great to talk to you today, Melanie. So thanks for coming on the show. You'll find the links to all of the books and authors mentioned in this episode on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. If you've got any comments on our conversation today, we'd love to hear from you, so feel free to add your thoughts in there as well. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.